Well, good morning, everyone. It is, it is a humbling experience of being up here to have the opportunity to present and lift up God's word to you. And indeed, we need his help. So let us go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank and praise you for who you are as our wonderful Father, that you speak, and that you speak powerfully, that you've inscripturated your mind and your will and your holy word. We ask you, Lord, that the spirit that's with us this morning will quicken us to your word, that we'll respond with faith and obedience. Lord, the words I speak and the words we hear, Lord, are merely words, unless you uh, make them alive to our hearts and minds. We ask, Lord, that you will do that, so we will love you more, understand you better, and live for you greatly, Lord. Please help us. In your son's name we ask this. Amen. Well, before we get started here, I just want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We will be reading Psalm 2 in a little bit, but we're going to start out with Acts chapter 4. So as we begin, it'd be good to get your Bibles open to there. A few weeks ago, I stood up here in front of you and joked that newcomers should come to the party with the pastors because I'm obviously a guy who's very fun at parties. Well, not surprisingly, that's not true at all. No one likes me to have at parties because I just make them hard. <laughs> because I really only like to talk about two things, and that's religion and politics. And one of my good friends tells me, he says, Marty, why do you have to make every conversation so awkward? <laughs> well, even with that indictment, I still want to talk about two things this morning with you, religion and politics. Because I do get the sense I feel the murmuring, the struggles, that I hear the conversations, what's going on in people's hearts and minds, and not just things we're talking about because they're current events, but things that are on our minds to the point of exasperation, frustration, anger, even fear of what's going on in our world and our current political process. Even people who are indifferent to the political process or politics in general, I get the sense they're looking on and saying, what's going on? And from what I'm hearing, I, we thought it was a good time to pause in our series in Genesis and just spend a week talking about these types of things. So the question we want to start with this morning is, where do Christians go when we have feelings of uncertainty and fear about the world around us? Where we go might surprise you, because we want to go to the place where Christians in the Bible went to. And that's why I had you turn open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 presents a, a, a situation of political unrest, of Christians being persecuted. We have the new Christian movement. Jesus is raised from the dead, was ascended into heaven, and now his followers commanded to go and proclaim as witnesses to the world who he is and what he will do. And so they went about doing that. And Peter and John here in Acts chapter 4 set about doing what Christians do, talking about Jesus. And they went around Jerusalem and doing that and Eventually, the government got wind of this, and they started the oppression. They didn't like the message. They started their force against Christianity. In the beginning there of chapter 4, we, see, we hear the story of Peter and John being put in jail. You see there in chapter 4, verse 21, you see that they were intimidated. They were threatened by the government. Right? But they were released, and when they were released, they came back together with other disciples, other followers of Jesus, and they needed encouragement because they were in fear. So look there at verse 23 of chapter 4 in Acts and see what they did when they got together. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Where did these group of early Christians go to get comfort, to get encouragement, to get inspiration, to keep going? They went to the Psalms. Now, that's not very surprising. But what is surprising is the psalm they decided to use as their exhortation that morning. Their sermon was based on Psalm chapter 2. You see there in verses 25 and 26 in Acts 4, that's a quote from Psalm chapter 2. See, it's not surprising they went to the Psalms because we're used to getting encouragement from the Psalms. We're used to having that wonderful pastoral language of shepherds coming after us and encouraging us. But I was simply struck, surprised, that they used Psalm chapter 2 to encourage their little enclave of Christians there, to encourage them to keep going. That's very surprising, isn't it? Because this is not the place to talking about the Gentiles raging and the kings of the earth plotting against the anointed one, why there? Well, it is surprising, isn't it? And, and the idea of surprise is what will guide us this morning because surprises are often the, the reason why we remember things, right? But our brother John said this morning, I will always now remember because I was so surprised when I heard that Japan is the second most unreached people group. I will remember Japan in my prayers because I was so struck by how underchurched Japan is. That was surprising, and I'll remember it. Often it's a surprising, the surprising gift you get at Christmas or your birthday that sticks with you, isn't it? Maybe not the best gift, but the most surprising gift. Or odd facts, surprising facts, may, you know, they surprise you and stick with you. Most of you probably don't know this, but um, you know Pastor Nick? His hair looks that good when he wakes up in the morning. That's surprising, isn't it? Now my modesty will prevent me from saying that mine does too. But I was surprised by that, and it stuck with me. Well, in terms of our Christianity, surprises wake us from our spiritual stupor. The Bible is full of surprises because God knows how easily we are spiritually anesthetized, just dulled down. We don't pay attention. So when we read the Bible, we just glance through it. My whole Bible reading experience was turned upside down when I got the advice, simple, straightforward advice, to ask two questions when I read the Bible. The first question is, ask, what do I learn about Jesus? Because I was so often looking at the Bible to say, what can I get for myself? What do I learn about Jesus? That revolutionized me. But the second one did so equally. When I read the Bible, I'm supposed to ask and look for, where is the surprise in this text? What surprises me about what God's word says here? Because when we find the surprise in the text, we often have found the place where we're previously blinded, or maybe a blind spot of sin, or maybe a cherished cliche that we hold on so tightly is actually not biblical. 
Surprises stir us. Surprises unsettle us. They stick with us. And we need all those things when it comes to our walk with the Lord. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's look at this text and find the surprises. And I think we'll be surprised about God's politics when we look here at Psalm chapter two, or Psalm 2. I was surprised that the early church read Psalm 2 to encourage them. And actually, when we read the entire psalm, I think we'll see there's lots of surprises. Psalm 2, if you would flip there now, would be a great time to do so. Psalm 2 is actually a song that's broken down into four stanzas. We don't see it as clear there in the English text, but it's there. Stanza 1 is verses 1 through 3. Stanza 2, 4 through 6. Stanza 3, 7 through 9. Stanza 4, 10 through 12. And I'll read it here, and I'll just make a comment so we understand who's talking and what's going on. So Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, stanza 1 is the summary of the world's view of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Stanza two, the response from the Father. He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Stanza three, this king's response. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Stanza four, the psalmist's call to action. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So just for a few moments this morning, what we'll do is we'll look at each of those sections and just summarize what's going on, a brief summary, and then together we'll try to find the surprises that hopefully will stir us and stick with us. So stanza one, a surprising question. See, what's going on in stanza one is pretty easy to see what's going on. The nations are coming together. They're coming together. Finally, we have some world unity. Finally, everybody's getting along and coming together. But notice what the goal of their unity is. Verse 2, to take a stand against the Lord and his anointed. In a moment here, we'll find out who this anointed one is. But notice the psalmist has already given us a hint, is tipping his hat of how God will receive this great unity of the world. Verse 1, it's all in vain. It's a futile attempt against God and his kingdom. See, the image here is all the great leaders and powers of the world are gathering together, both the leaders and their people, as you see there in verse 2. And the reason they're getting together is they are prisoners in chains. They have a great desire, you see there in verse 3, to throw off all the cords and what binds them to the Lord. The nations are coming together to get rid of religious superstition and dogma. 
They want to break the cords of rule and authority that God has over them. He, the great puppet master, they want to snip the cord to get rid of the tyranny so they can finally have true freedom. That's what's going on there in the first stanza. Pretty clear. But what's the surprise? What's so surprising about this? We probably know this. Well, I think the surprise is the God-inspired question there of verse 1. You see that question? Why do the nations conspire and plot against the Lord? What's so surprising is that's not what the world's questions are. The world's questions are all about why are we fighting with each other? Why is there so much disunity and rancor and malice and rage one to another, people to people, nations against nation? In fact, this is why so many people are anxious about this political season. I mean, you just bring up politics and you get in a fight. People get angry. Why is everybody so angry? You turn on the 24-hour news cycles and they spend many of those hours talking heads, talking about the world's questions and what to do about them, what, about, what to do about the problems. And it's what our politicians on both sides of the aisle promise to deal with. All this anger, all this disunity. Why can't we just get along, the world asks. Why is there so much hatred, the world wonders. Why is there so much fighting? What's surprising to me this week is I look down at this text is that's not God's question. That's not the question of the Lord. We'll do ourselves great disservice. We'll do the world great disservice if we pay more attention to the world's questions instead of God's questions. And Jesus models this for us, doesn't he? I mean, so often in the Gospels, Jesus gets asked questions by the leaders. And what's often his response? To masterfully turn the table, not answer them, but to respond with another question. And what does he get in return to his question? Silence. I love one of the Gospels. It says, they dared not ask him another question. See, the question in verse 1 here in Psalm 2 is the question of the day, and virtually no one is asking it. Why is the world in revolt against its maker? So the surprise here teaches us to pay more attention to the Bible's questions, the questions God have of us because they're far, far more important questions than our questions we have of God. Why are all the nations, why are all the peoples in the world fighting against God is the question. But you might say, well, I, I didn't know we were fighting against God. I mean, I had the, the privilege of going to the Indians game on Friday night. A friend of mine gave me a free ticket and we went up and there was the nations gathered together. I know this for a fact because we had to sing the Star Spangled Banner and O Canada. It was terrible. Right? The nations all together, and I saw people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and races were all gathered together, just like here in this first stanza. We weren't fighting against God. In fact, in the seventh inning, we stood up and asked God to bless us. Right? What's going on here, you may wonder? But if we neglect this question and go after the world's questions, we won't ever get true answers, will we? If we don't see verse 1 as the question to wrestle with, then we'll have no grasp of reality and no hope for the future and no ideas of how to ameliorate the problems. 
See, the Bible does draw a straight line from one's relationship with God to one's relationship with someone else. As one goes, so goes the other. And the reason is this. Because each person individually, and all of us collectively, as this first stanza says, and as what we've heard from Genesis 3 the last few weeks, we are all fighting against our maker, trying to cut the cords of authority and rule over our lives. When we ask the question of Psalm 1, or Psalm 2, 1, then we can get at true answers for the questions the world asks. I love the way Paul, just in passing in Titus 3, 3, he makes this glancing blow to all of humanity. He, said, he notices culture and he says, everyone is spending their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The Bible posits that. It assumes that everybody's going to act that way. But the question is, why are they acting that way? So the surprising start to the psalm does indeed lead us to understand what's wrong with the world. It does indeed help us understand the headlines. It shows us that things will never get any better without God. So we need to have God give us a response. And that's what comes in stanzas two and three. Surprising question in stanza one a surprising response in stanzas two and three, and those are verses four through nine there. For the sake of time, I'm putting those together because combined together, they are one terribly uh, surprising response. See, in stanza two there, verses four through six, we hear about God's response to the nation's plot, and it's not a pleasant one. Verse four, God laughs at their gumption. He mocks them. And then verse five, he burns hot with fury. And then in verse 6, he decides to speak and disclose his plan. God's plan for this rebellion of the world is indeed a very political move. He makes a move that should terrify the world, it says. He anoints and appoints his son to be the king of the world. And then we get in stanza 3, verses 7 through 9. This king that God has appointed and anointed, this son of God, he speaks now. And he assures us that he is in the rightful place in the holy family to be the king. And then clearly in verse 7 there, you might have seen a quote like this before in the Bible. This, this verse, along with the rest of the Bible, makes it clear that this son, this king, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus will receive a great inheritance from his father. He will receive a people for his very own. And the entire world there at the end of verse 8 will be his own possession. And now Jesus is the ruler of the world. He will put down all rebellion with a stern, actionable rebuke, as you see there in verse 9. That's what's going on in this, these stanzas. Maybe you've already been stirred up by some of the surprises. I hope you have. There are a number of surprises in these, these verses, but let me just list three of them quickly. The first surprise there is God's initial response to the rebellion. See, if we were honest with ourselves and we read verses 1 and 2 and think that they actually can happen in real life, we would be terrified. Imagine going home today and you flip on the news and a breaking alert comes on. And it says, the red armies of Russia and China are coming together and going to their eastern front coming for our Western Front, collectively coming together, going straight for America. Maybe it's just me, but 
The thought of millions upon millions upon millions of trained military men coming after us terrifies me, worries me. What are we going to do? Notice what God's response is to the whole world coming together and raising its fist against God. Verse 4, God laughs. God doesn't laugh much in scripture. And I've been told a number of times, indeed, God has a sense of humor and look at my face and look at my hair. See, isn't God funny? That's not the kind of funny that's going on here. This is a serious funny. This is almost a pitiful laugh. You think your coming together worries me, says the Lord? You think your pathetic plot to break the cords of my rule and authority have any chance of working? (laughs) Not a chance. Certainly Russia and China coming together would worry us. Maybe they could take over America. Maybe they could wipe out the church, God's people. That worries us. It doesn't worry God. He laughs. And that leads us to the second surprise that we see here in this text. And we see that there's a great surprise of what is the true hope for our world. Because that's really what this political wrangling is all about. Where's our hope? How's it going to change? What are we going to do? What's God's answer to this? Well, it's amazingly surprising. He appoints a king. He appoints a king. It seems so anticlimactic because we're used to different appointments, presidents, kings, premiers, prime ministers. They come and they go and nothing really changes. But deep down, this is a surprising truth, isn't it? Because deep down, we do think that we somehow hold the future in our hands. Dick Lucas says of this psalm, he says, we must speak the truths of this psalm about God's hope. Otherwise, we just end up flattering human nature. I remember listening to Dick uh, in England speak about, in London actually, and speak about uh, this psalm. And he, they just came out of a season where they had to go to uh, commencements and baccalaureates. And he went to the crowd and said, aren't you glad this is over? He says, because I get so tired of the motivational speakers or the, the, the you know, military men or the attorney generals, all these different people coming to this commencement and telling these kids, flattering them, telling these kids, you are the hope of the future. And Dick responded, only what an 89-year-old man can say, it's rubbish, isn't it? They're just as sinful and ignorant as everyone else. Actually, they'll probably make things worse. But just for a moment, this speaker flatters these kids as though they can make any difference. They're just ordinary clay like you and like me. God laughs at us. That's what's so surprising to me. The hope of the world is not has anything to do with me, my political views, what I, even if the ideal candidate gets in, no hope for the world. There is no hope for the world except in God's politics, not our own. Even if the best candidate gets in, he does all the revisions to the laws and the tax codes and everything we dream is great. Even if he gets, there's no hope in this world without verses 5 through 9 here in Psalm 2. God must speak and his action must happen. And indeed it will. He says, I have put a king on earth. This king will take down all rebellion and hold the world accountable to its stupid coup. 
See, it seems rather unlikely in human terms that a change of kingship on this little hill called Zion, just outside Jerusalem, this small little country in the world, it seems that that would make no difference in the power scheme of the world. But that's because the world doesn't understand who it's dealing with. God's solution is the world's only hope. And Jesus' enthronement that we talked about here will already happen at his first coming. And at his ascension, he continues to rule the world, but quietly, spiritually, by faith and not by sight. And so as every person, one at a time, comes to the, submit to themselves, Jesus is king, his rule is exercised. But make no mistake, friends, this behind-the-scenes quiet rule will not stay forever. As this psalm points out in many other parts of the Bible, his rule will be clearly seen and felt one day at his second coming. And that's what we need to know. We need to know who it is we're dealing with, and we need to know what is to come. And that's when we'll be comforted. It's also what we need to know for the sake of our friends. Friends, this is going to happen. Verse 9. And everyone needs to know about this. Our third surprise here in these stanzas is to the very nature and character of God. And we see it so clearly here. God, whether God the Father or God the Son, is a God of righteous indignation. You see there starting in verse 5. God is furious with the conspiracy. And so he issues his divine decree what he'll do with this rebellion. Certainly this is not the action of God that most people are familiar with. We're often so embarrassed about the wrath and judgment of God. We mute it in our conversations, like the last thing we want to bring up when we're telling our friends about Jesus. But that's because we still believe the serpent of Genesis 3, isn't it? Remember what the serpent did? We talked about this the last two weeks. Go ahead and eat the fruit. It's okay. Surely you won't die. It's okay to do this little thing on your own and do what you want. Don't worry. God surely won't. No, don't worry about it. That's not what this psalm says. And not only the nature of who God is in verses 4 through 6, but also the nature of Jesus Christ, the portrait of Jesus Christ that's being painted there in verses 7 through 9. The king, the king Jesus, is the one appointed to take down the rebellion. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. One commentator on this psalm, I think, put it just right. He said, if I had to give a title, a summary title for this psalm, he would call it this, the anger of God demonstrated in the mission of Christ. Because he says, we so often hear about the love of God demonstrated in the mission of Christ that we rarely, if ever, hear about this aspect of Jesus' reign and his rule. We think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, barely just speaking a whimper. The surprise for us here in this text is this is Jesus, the warrior king. See what's going on in verses 8 and 9. The logic here is absolutely essential for us to understand. In verse 8, the father gives his son the entire world. So what is his son to do? He knows that the whole world is his, but this world, verse 1, is in rebellion against him. So the son, the king, Jesus, in order to take the world into his possession, must utterly destroy all rebellion and enmity. This is a crucial aspect of Jesus' work. He can't save the world unless he's Lord. He can't save you and me and deliver us from tyranny of Satan and deliver us from these evil rulers plotting and encouraging us to come with them. He can't deliver us from them 
unless he's the king. He must break the enemies. He must put them down decisively. There's one more thing to notice here in these stanzas. Notice the nature of God's politics here. Both presidential candidates have talked about this idea of making America a great again, doing all these things. America once again be great. I saw a sign driving up to my mom's the other day on Route 11, wonderfully colored sign. It said, Jesus will make America great. That's a step in the right direction, but still not quite right, is it? What is God's goal? What's his, the goal of his politics? To make Jesus great. Is that your hope? Is that really what you're praying for? And that's what your fear is? That maybe if whoever gets elected, what's going on, maybe Jesus won't be as great? I, can't, I stand condemned in front of you, saying that's not my hope. I need to be surprised by the Bible. And here's the last surprise. Stanza 4, verses 10 through 12. A surprising gospel. Now that the psalmist has laid out the politics of God, he comes back to a very personal charge to each one of us. If the whole world is in rebellion against the, the whole world is in rebellion against a rightfully angry Lord, then there has to be a calling to be wise there, verse 10. And the mark of a wise man is that he listens to the warnings. Savvy businessman gets up in the morning. He's a wise man. He turns on the radio to hear the traffic warnings. He drives to work to examine the market warnings for his clients. And then he goes home at night and he listens to the health warnings. So he orders his night and what he eats and what he does. Similarly, the the psalmist calls us to be wise and, and listen to the warnings of this psalm. Not just to have a good experience and feel better, but to understand the God who we're dealing with. So he says there, serve the Lord. Humble yourself in front of him. That's the imagery of kissing the king there in verse 12. A call to be wise, a call to surrender and submit. That's the clear action of anyone listening to this psalm. And then a call for an urgent call to flee to God for protection. And that's our surprise here in this last stanza. The surprise is I can only escape God's wrath by running to him. That's surprising, isn't it? The purpose of this psalm is for people to find refuge from God's rightful anger in Jesus Christ. See, what do you do when you see danger? What do I do when I see danger? I run, I flee, I get as far away as possible. What the psalmist says, run to the king. Run to the one who's angry. Run to the one who will rule with a rod of iron and dash the world to pieces like a potter's vessel. Why? Verse 12, because his anger is quickly diffused. He's the only safe place, friends. He's the only refuge. Pastor Chris and he said him and Sarah have a, a, wonder, a wonderful parenting mod, a mantra. He didn't call it wonderful. I'm calling it wonderful. Uh, when their kids get in trouble or something goes wrong, He says, when you're in trouble, when you do something wrong, don't run away from us, run to us. This is the message of the gospel, isn't it? God is angry with our sin. Without the refuge of Christ, we are very much considered to be part of the conspiring peoples of the world. No amount of good works, no amount of good intentions, no amount of good religious practices can make you right with them. You are part of the plotting nations. 
In ancient times, the word gospel was used in a very political tone outside the Bible. Often it would work like this. The gospel just means news. And so people would recall to the town square and they say, we have a gospel for you. So everybody gathered together and a messenger came into town. He enrolled his parchment and he said, I have a gospel for you. A new king's in charge. Your city, your region's been conquered, and there's a new king in charge. That's the news. And now you owe your allegiance and service to someone else. This is Psalm 2, isn't it? Politics in action. News of a new king. Now, there is bad news. The bad news is that we're all court-martialed and found guilty of rebellion against this government. But only in this light... The amazing gospel, the amazing news is this, that this new king, well, he is the one, he's the very one who will protect us, he'll pardon us, he'll wipe the slate clean completely, and not just treat us as forgiven rebels, but treat us as one of his very own court, cherished and beloved, completely clean. And as we close here, don't Look at verse 11. Let me just encourage you. Don't fear the call to fear. C.S. Lewis captures the paradox of Christ's meekness and his majesty so well in the Chronicle of Narnia series. There's that famous conversation in The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe where Susan and Mr. Beaver are talking. And and Mr. Beaver tells Susan about Aslan, the, the, the one who represents Christ in the series. And he tells her that Aslan is a great lion. And Susan responds, oh, I, I thought he was a man. I didn't know he was a lion. Is, is he safe? I shall very, feel very nervous about going to meet him. Safe, Beaver responds. Who says anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's exactly it, isn't it? God isn't safe. He's not safe at all, friends. He is the mighty and fearsome Lord just like we saw here in Psalm 2 and what we see through all scripture. But in the presence of a fearsome God, in the presence of a fearsome Jesus, the only sensible thing to do is heed the warnings of this psalm and to run to him and take refuge in him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, as I said from the beginning, we're going to talk about politics, and we're going to do something a little different this morning. Part of the application, I normally put it in my sermon, we left to an end. We're going to do a little roundtable discussion with uh, my friends, Pastor Chris and Pastor Nick. I'm going to ask them to come up here. But as they come up, I just want to say a word of response to this psalm before we talk about politics specifically in application, is there are really two responses or two types of people in this room only. Those who have not run to the king ever and should be trembling. Friends, his wrath is quickly kindled. His desire is for you to come and take refuge and safety in him. If you've never done that before or unsure, come talk to one of us after. We'll pray with you, have to talk this through with you, and help you think about this great calling. If you have run to the king, can I encourage you to keep doing it day after day after day? For this is a life of repentance and faith, knowing that we got duped in to the rebellion 
knowing that we're wrong and knowing we need to run back and kiss the king. All right, guys, what did I do wrong? A great sermon, Marty. Thank you very much. Yeah, amen, amen. Yep. Poor Marty thought this was going to be his curtain call, but no, that was yeah. well done, brother. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Great word. Challenging, uh, encouraging. I think maybe to start off this little segment of it, you mentioned in the beginning of your sermon uh, in Acts chapter 4 how it was surprising that the disciples would, would go to Psalm 2. You, didn't, yep. you sort of alluded to why that part was surprising uh, in the midst of these series of surprises. Why don't you tell us a little bit more concretely, why is it surprising that they went there? Because I said it a little bit, but to say more, that I'm, we're so used to the Psalms being this flowery, shepherding-type language. It kind of nestles up and encourages us. Um, I, if I was in charge of encouraging a congregation uh, in the midst of all this controversy and fear, I'd want, I certainly wouldn't read Psalm 2. I guess I just did. But anyway, uh, if I was in charge, I, I would not go there. It just surprised me as I read this that they just read these first two verses and prayed and said, God, you're in control. You're the king. You have everything predestined according to your plan. It's going to happen. Now let's be bold. I was just shocked by that. That's not the kind of counsel we generally give or want uh, we receive in these days. Well, and it's particularly pertinent to our time right now. I mean, as we were talking around the office these past couple weeks and just observing um, debate after debate, news cycle after news cycle, talking to people in the community and talking to many of you, there is an overwhelming sense right now in our community, in our nation, and even in our church that um, this election cycle is particularly tense. There are unique fears that are shown to be true during this time. And I don't know about you guys, but I've had more people come to me this last three months and say, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I mean, the, the whole thing that's happening right now is so confusing to me. As a Christian, we have a morally bankrupt candidate and a morally bankrupt candidate. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Just tell me who to vote for, and I'll vote for him. And so, Chris, who are we supposed to vote for? Nice. All right. All right. There's a softball if I ever got one. Well, I, my observations of what's taking place, I think as we, we reflect on this psalm, and specifically the way in which we can apply a psalm like this, the more TV I watch, which is maybe my first problem, and I don't watch much, but the little bit that I have been watching, the more that I'm seeing both major party candidates really try to leverage this idea of fear yeah. uh, in order to garner support or to, to earn a vote. Uh, you know, if you, if you vote for the other side, uh, this bad thing is going to happen to the nation. And, and I've just found that to be profound in light of Psalm 2, which, um, as Marty so eloquently put out there for us, I, you know, he will speak to them in his wrath, verse 5, and terrify them in his fury. Then again in verse 9, the son's speaking, uh, the son's work, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces. I mean, that's, that's really terrifying. Yeah. And so what's interesting is the, the call for this psalm uh, toward the end to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is a, a fear to be exercised, but it's not uh, of either candidate in this particular scenario or of their agenda necessarily, but to to actually fear and serve the Lord, but not in, a, not in a way that isn't accommodated with rejoicing. What an interesting yeah. juxtaposition there in verse 11. Rejoice with, with trembling. And so 
the safest place, therefore, is to, to be in the shelter of the one who, who is terrifying and to be on the wrong side uh, of that equation. I think that's why the Acts 4 reference back to here is so appropriate because we don't have to fear the government no matter what happens because God's in charge. He's already had his plan in place. Christ has come. Let's continue to be bold. Let's continue to live for Christ. And what happens, happens. God's in charge. Yeah, it's interesting in verses 1 through 3 of the passage there, how we see that in the midst of global chaos or even local chaos, uh, the consequences of ungodly rulers in charge are that, number one, we should expect a level of difficulty or chaos, right? We should expect a level of persecution, uh, even as God's people. But does that mean, do you think, that we should be just sort of apolitical and uninvolved in this process? That, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. Jesus is in charge. It's all good. Yeah. I'm just going to stay home on election day or, or put my head in the sand to turn off any of the news stations. Or should we be involved? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I find myself walk, going back and forth, even over my years as an adult, being overly politically active. and Not so much the activity, but the hope. Yeah. That subtly my hope starts to be, if this person doesn't win, it's over. Or if this person does win, it's, it's good. Or and then on the flip side, getting so exasperated and passive and just, who cares? doesn't matter. I'm not going to pay attention or do anything. I go back and forth and I don't think either one's the right one. We certainly don't put our hope in the political process because Psalm 2 and any other places is clear about that. But I don't think the response is passivity either. Right. Yeah, I wonder, Nick, your idea on something like uh, the advocating for the protection of religious liberty. I mean, a very particular idea that the, should we be active in that? Is there any value in that? Should we just uh, allow what comes to come and, you know, this kind of cliche of fear of the Lord? But is there something maybe beyond that too? Yeah, I, yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, I think of Romans 13 in which the Apostle Paul talks about how God uses rulers as his servants, either for your good or for your judgment. Uh, and how in a democracy we have an opportunity to choose, in some, in some ways, to choose our rulers. And so why wouldn't we want to choose rulers that are for the common good of the people as opposed to the common judgment of the people? Um, I was in a meeting this last week in Dallas with a number of people, one of which was um, a pastor of First Baptist Dallas named Robert Jeffress. You may have seen Robert Jeffress in the news. He's in the news fairly regularly as a political commentator. And he made a very insightful comment. He said, as Christians, sometimes we step back and we just sort of say, well, what's going to happen? It's what's going to happen. And we romanticize the idea of persecution. But my friends, there is absolutely nothing romantic about it. Sometimes the church does expand through persecution. And sometimes it doesn't. And so when it comes to religious liberties, I do think that's really important to think about uh, during the election cycle, if for nothing else, for the common good of our nation and for the specific good beyond that of opportunities for gospel expansion. That's interesting. As, as we think about goodness, mm -hmm. uh, one of the other fascinating observations about where we are in the 11th hour of the election cycle is just how much we're talking about moral choices. Mm -hmm. I find that so interesting that, that on both sides, all of a sudden, we're talking about the importance of character. And, and qualification. And, and I think as we, we think about ways in which we can continue to engage not only in conversations about the protection of religious liberty and other things, uh, but as we ask questions like, hey, wh where, you know, where does all this sense of, of goodness and morality come from? I mean, after all, if you, if you take a, a naturalistic view of the world, if we're all just kind of here by accident and God does not exist, then really we, 
we have no platform for morality at all. And so the abuse of women, for example, under that worldview, there wouldn't really be any problem, right? The strong survive. And yet, uh, what we would espouse to as Christians is that, that actually these objective moral values do exist. I don't know that I've heard anyone on either side of the aisle uh, advocate for some of the things that we've seen uh, from these, these major party candidates. And so uh, if that's true, then, then God does exist. And we can, from there, build a, a wonderful conversation into the existence of God and the problem of sin, even as we yeah. talked about in Genesis. So there's gospel opportunity. You're taking all the questions the of the world yes. and you're pointing them to deeper questions about the person and the work yeah. of God. Marty, what would you say to our church family with regard to how do we stay actively involved, how do we stay interested, how do we stay informed, while at the same time maintaining Christian witness? What sort of, hot, what sort of disposition should we have? What sort of things should we engage in, yeah. things to avoid? Um, I think the disposition, two things, I, I've said this in the class with uh, teaching with Dan Osborne about holiness is, the thing I come back to seems to be scriptural um, response to most any situation is for a Christian, humility and prayer. Yeah. So we must have a humble disposition, listening to our opponents, so to speak, yeah. actually listening and caring enough to listen to them and engaging with them. We don't have to be passive and you just say whatever. We can engage with them. The other thing I was thinking about is First Timothy. Why does Paul says we, we thought here this idea we need to pray for our leaders. But it's interesting. Why is it that we're supposed to pray for our leaders? Pray for our, offer intercessions for kings and all those in high possessions so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So our prayer is not just let's make America great again. Our prayer is in one sense let a leader be in charge so we can get on with worshiping the Lord, living a Christian life without interference as much as that's possible. That's yeah. a good thing to do. Yeah. Pray that regularly. Yeah. So humility and prayer, I think, is a, a good... Great disposition and certainly derived here from Psalm 2 as well. Yep. I want to say as well, you know, it, I want to encourage you as believers in this cycle, this election cycle, I want to encourage you from the deepest, most passionate part of my being don't be an idiot. I'm out. I'm done. Sorry. No, what I mean by that is this. You can be politically interested and not be nasty. You can be politically interested and not engage in personal attack. You can be politically interested and not say, well, if you vote for so-and-so, then surely you must believe dot, dot, dot. You can actually have a give and take exchange of ideas. Um, you can avoid commenting about the political process on Facebook because I'm I out. Oh, pastor, you've gone too far <laughs> yeah. there. No, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't know if you figured it out yet. You're not going to convince anybody to change no. their mind on Facebook. You're really not. I, I, a couple weeks ago, I did a little experiment during one of the debates. I just, I just put a line out in the water to see who would comment. I made no comments about the candidates in general, but I was watching the debate, and I was talking about how frustrated I was as I was watching it. And most of you didn't take the bait, but some of you did. <laughs> and it was very interesting to see the back and forth that began to happen, like, like you were going to actually convince each other in the comment thread of my little Facebook post. Have, nobody changes their mind that way. But when you actually talk to people, well, now that might be productive. So just don't be an idiot. What do you got, Chris? 
I can't fall. I could do any better than that. Amen. <laughs> Please rise for the benediction. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, last word. Marty Sweeney, great message today. Should Christians here in this region be involved uh, in the political process, whether that's voting, talking about, or even engaging in politics, actually running for office themselves? Is that a good thing for them? Absolutely. Regardless of who wins the election, will God abandon his people in this time and this place? Absolutely not. That's that's an encouraging word for us to consider. Put our hope in the person and work of God and engage in the processes that he's given us to engage in on this side of eternity. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Y'all, we are out of time today. Let's... Uh, stand together. I want to close us in prayer, asking for God's help in this and for our country as we move forward. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, you are a terrible and mighty and awesome and loving king. And the picture of that in Psalm chapter 2 is striking to us, that you do not um, abide. You do not suffer the scheming of nations and people against you, but your wrath is swift. And so we pray, help us, Father, as individuals and as a people collectively to depend on you, to draw near to the king, to place our hope not in making America great again, not in any one political party, but that we would place our hope in you and in your works and in your ways and that you would do incredible saving works by the power of your mighty hand and that you would continue to extend common grace upon all people across all nations, that you would be made much of, that your glory would be shown, that your kingdom would expand. Lord, help us to exercise wisdom in how we engage uh, during this particularly contentious season in American history. And Lord, help us to exercise humility, grace, and prayer as Pastor Marty encouraged us today. Be with your people, we ask. Help us to see our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.